if there's been one dominant religious news headline over the, the past decade or so, it's been the decline of religiosity in North America. So just three weeks ago, it was reported that now within the U.S., church membership has dropped below 50% for the first time in recorded history. Christianity has taken over that period the brunt of the beating, so evangelicals now make up less than a quarter of the population within this country, and I think that quarter is even being generous. On the flip side, you have the much-documented rise of the nuns, so that now pushes roughly a quarter of our population. And if you look at sort of Gen Z or the iGen or whatever you want to call them, right, those born after 1996, religious nuns make up the largest group of that demographic. 40% of that demographic define as religiously none. And of course, that decline in religiosity hasn't spared our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. So the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and yet... We last year posted our largest membership decline in over a decade, actually over a century last year. Even here in Arkansas, the number of Southern Baptist churches is shrinking, and I could keep showering you with very encouraging stats, but I think you get the point. We are in the midst of what you might call a religious recession in our own country, and while some hoped that a plague of biblical proportions would be America's best hope at religious revival. Well, friends, early evidence suggests otherwise. So what are churches, what are churches like UBC, what are we to do? Right? How do we, in the midst of the cultural winds that we face, how do we reach the next generation? Do we bring back revivals and sort of stadium crusades that were so popular in the last century? You know, maybe book the power team. I've looked, you can still do that. Lots of availability. Do we turn our worship services into performance art, right? Low lights, big sound, slick shows with relevant messages? Should we build out our social media platform? Should we work to create virtual churches? You know, this gathering in person stuff, it's so medieval, so passe. Maybe establish a new commission. Maybe we should work with a new denominational task force to address the problem. Friends, what ought we to do? According to the Bible, the answer is actually refreshingly refreshingly simple. The answer is refreshingly simple. We are to preach and to plant churches. That's the Bible's response. We are to preach and to plant churches. And friends, that brings us to the topic of our message this morning. So if you're visiting, you're coming to a different kind of message. This isn't a typical message you would hear at UBC. Typically, uh, we value what you call expository preaching. Uh, that is just where the, the preacher exposits, he explains the text in such a way that the point of the passage becomes the point of the message, then applied to the heart of the hearer. And that way, God's word is on the agenda for what we hear. And yet, sometimes we'll do what we're going to do this morning, what we did last week, and, and do a topical message. Uh, and 
it's not going to be on Bible translation as the old sermon card said. So I hope you noticed as you came in, we have new sermon cards for the next trimester. But if you have your old one, it was supposed to be on Bible translation. Um, And I'm guessing maybe a few of you are bummed about that. I'm guessing more of you, maybe more of you are relieved that you get to avoid a message amusing about the distinctions between formal and functional equivalence and Bible translation. Maybe I'll save that gem for another day. At any rate, this morning I want us to think about what it means for us to be a church planting church. And I want us to do that in part because we hope and intend to send out our own Trey Richardson later this year. You know, when Trey was hired five years ago as a pastoral assistant, I said the plan was to have him for three to five years, right? The goal is to pour into him, to give him opportunities for ministry and for teaching. We get to observe him and equip him in the hopes of then sending him out. And the exciting thing is that time has now come. And while UBC pastors, like in the past, pastors here have left. You know, they've gone out on their own to start new churches. Think of Robert Cup at Fellowship or Jim Hall at New Heights or Jonathan Beasley at the Church of Arkansas. I'm not sure we've exactly planted a church in the sense that we've raised someone up within the church with the intention of sending them out, and then the church comes corporately behind it, and then the church does just that, sends them out. Maybe Jose Segura back in the 1990s, I'm not sure. But point being, we are embarking on a new season, new chapter in the church's life. And you know, when church planting conversations begin, it's not uncommon for the conversation just to jump right to, right, who's the guy? And is he the entrepreneurial type? You know, or maybe we think immediately about the location. Where can we drop our little special pin on the map? Or financing, right? The conversation, what kind of war chest do we need if we're going to be successful? Or maybe what's our strategy, right? What's our pipeline? By which is usually meant just kind of what's our business plan to plant X churches in X number of years? Well, friends, those are all fine questions to ask. But we first need to step back and ask, I think, some even more basic questions, such as, should we plant? Or is church planting optional? Is it really just one of the many fads that regularly sweep through Evan Golton? You know, what's our goal in church planting? Is our goal to focus on that which most distinguishes our brand from other church brands around us? Is it our differences we should be highlighting or instead should the main focus be on that gospel that unites us with other Bible-believing churches? You know, as we plant, are we given any biblical patterns? Are we given any biblical examples? Or is it largely just left up to us to invent a strategy? You know, what does all that mean practically for us at UBC? Well, friends, as we tackle this topic, I want to do so through these sort of four headings. These four headings will serve as our four points this morning. These four headings. First, our promise. Second, our purpose. Third, our pattern. Fourth, our practice. So those those are the four headings, just right there, nice and short, hopefully nice and easy. Our promise, our purpose, our pattern, and our practice. So first, let's think about our promise, our promise. Because so much of church planning immediately focuses on what we must do. 
right? Again, how to identify the guy or, or how to build a core team or how to identify a location, right? How do you cast vision? How do you build momentum? That's what so much of the literature is about. But if we're going to plant, we must know our hope doesn't finally lie in all of our strategizing and in all of our planning, but our hope fundamentally lies on God's promise, on God's promise. So if you would, turn with your Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we're going to be sitting there starting looking at verse 16. Uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, but you grabbed one of those worship guides, you should, we heard that text read for us early. I think you can find it on page 8 of that worship guide. So Matthew 16. And here in Matthew's gospel, uh, Peter has finally connected all of the dots. So the healings of Jesus, the feedings, the teachings, he's connected it and realized, oh my, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised son and savior of God's people. And that's a great turning point here in the gospel of Matthew, to which when Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus replies, picking up in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, from this point on in Matthew's gospel, similar to Mark's gospel, from this point on, Jesus is going to be preparing the disciples, you can see it, verse 21, verse 24, for the kind of sacrifices, for the kind of suffering that's going to wait all of those who follow after him in faith, the kind of suffering Peter himself is going to have to endure. And yet, all of that suffering is in the context of the promise he first gives there in verse 18 when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's where church planting has to begin, with the courage and the confidence that Christ will build his church, right? Not our plans, that's not where our confidence finally lies, it's not our plans, it's Christ's promise. It's Christ's promise. Because friends, even our best laid plans, right, they come to naught. When fragile church planting budgets come up short, when the local community is hostile to the plant, when rental space falls through, when volunteers fail to show, when that sweet church planting team that was so excited four months before, they're showing up to put things together and the rest, and they're just bickering and they're at odds with one another. Right? It's in those moments that the promise of Christ has to motivate, has to compel us. Right? I will build my church, Christ says. And it's part of what we sung last week in the Church's One Foundation, which I would have had us sing this week if we hadn't sung last week. But in that hymn, right, we, we sang, Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Right, that's the promise right there captured in that hymn that we see here in Matthew 16. The promise that will sustain because it's Christ's work because it's his church that he bought with his own blood. Now to be clear, this promise, note it doesn't mean, and Christ doesn't promise to build our local church, so he's not promising our local church, he is promising his universal church. 
So we got to be careful with this promise. We can't take it, maybe like some prosperity preacher, run and just take it and assure ourselves that, yeah, because of this, we know we can have personal success. That's not how Christ means it. His church, universal, will succeed. And yet, it is that promise that nonetheless sustains us. So Trey and Christian, where, Trey and Christian where'd you guys go? Where's, where, oh, there you are. Okay, so I just need to know where you are because I was going to look at you. I'm going to talk to you for a moment. Trey's like, I wasn't prepared for this. To Trey and Kristen, I just want to say, this is the promise the two of you have to cling to. That Christ, that he has promised to build his church. Right? He doesn't need you. And this promise doesn't finally hinge upon you. And yet Christ delights to use you. He saved you. He's equipped you. He delights to use you. And that is what you have to hold on to. That must be your hope even as you think about planting in this season. And any who might think of going with them and planting with them, that's the promise that should motivate and mobilize you, that Christ will build his church. And it's that promise that assures us that whatever happens, whether or not anything we seek to plant out of this church is a smashing success or it's a colossal failure, we know Christ's efforts finally will be victorious. We know how the story ends. So even in the midst of what could be our own failures, we don't finally fret. We don't throw our hands up in the air. We don't despair because Christ will have the victory. And yet that promise isn't given in a vacuum. It also comes with the accompanying power to see it through verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So right there, the keys of the kingdom, right there, the power and the authority that Christ gives to local churches to declare the what and the who of the gospel. The what as in what is a gospel profession, which Peter has just made, and the who, like who are those gospel professors. So local churches speak for Christ on earth. right? They're invested, local churches are, with his power, gifted with his spirit in order to accomplish his purposes. Because the work of the church is the work of the triune God. So God founded it. Again, Jesus died for it. He bought it. And the Holy Spirit secures and equips it. The church is God's idea, right? It's not a man-made invention. We see it right here in Matthew 16. You see it later in Matthew 18. The church is God's idea. And in that sense, God himself is the great church planter. It's how God ensures there's going to be a witness to him that will endure throughout the ages. All right, so what are, the, what are the disciples supposed to do with that promise, and what are they supposed to do with that power? Well, that brings us to our second point, right? our purpose. Thought about our promise, now what's our purpose? Just flip to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. Flip there to Matthew 28. And beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, so he sets that up. Right, therefore, with that statement, Jesus is going to say, therefore, as you act in my name, on my behalf, with my authority, what's the purpose? What are they to do? Go, he says, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as those ministering out of Christ's promise and in his power, Matthew 16, now with the assurance of his presence, Matthew 28, we're to go and to make disciples. That's the primary command there, make disciples, Matthew 28, 19. That's the single purpose of churches. It is to go and to make disciples. Make disciples in specifically by what? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. That's how disciples are made by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. So can churches fight against ethnic inequality? Absolutely. Can churches work to relieve temporal suffering? Sure. Can churches invest in underprivileged communities? Can they offer tutoring programs and the rest? Well, of course they can. All those things a church can do, and those are good things for churches to do, and yet... What a church must do is make disciples because the church is the only institution authorized by Jesus and equipped by Jesus to do so. So now if you want to think more about this, I actually preached a message on this back, I think it was on September 13th of 2020. So last September, September 13th, what is the mission of the church? We thought particularly and at length about Matthew 28. All right, so you can go back and listen to that. Because that's what disciples are to do. They are to go and make disciples and gather people into the family of God. Now listen, it's possible that you've come this morning and you recognize, yeah, I'm not a disciple. I'm not a disciple of this Jesus. I can't really make disciples of Jesus if I myself am not a disciple of Jesus. And the wonderful news I just want to hold out to you this morning is you actually can become a disciple of Jesus. That invitation Jesus offers out to you, and he offers it out freely and graciously, recognizing that none of us are naturally Christ's disciples. We're not born into it, or right? it's not a product of, of being a citizen of this country or born into a Christian family. We're all actually rebels against God by nature. We're not disciples, not those who naturally follow. We follow ourselves. We don't follow God. And yet, God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus to live and to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ who rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death, when we do that, the perfection of Christ's life becomes ours. All of our sins and debts against God, well, Christ took those and bore them for us on the cross, and we can be reconciled to God. We can be brought into this family. We can become followers of Christ, disciples after Christ. Friend, if you are not a Christian, that is the message I most want you to hear that you can be reconciled to God in Christ by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in him. And then, as we're going to see, what does that look like practically? It looks like following him in the fellowship of a local church. So that's our purpose as Christians to make disciples. But what does that look like practically? That brings us thirdly to our pattern. Thirdly, our pattern because we're all helped, I think, by having some kind of a pattern, some kind of an example to follow. So some of you will know that I'm not exactly good with my hands. 
I'm not exactly what you would call a handyman. No one in my house and no one in the office confuses me as Mr. Fix-It. In fact, I'm so bad, when my wife and I first got married, we needed these blinds, and so we picked up these blinds at the store and brought them back and, uh, in our apartment, and I opened them up, and I looked at them, and I stared at the directions, and there were all these shiny pieces, and there were all these complicated tools I needed, like a tape measure, and I got to get against the wall, and I confess, I'm like, I don't know what this is. I'm going to mess this up. I'm not drilling holes in anything. I just put it down. I'm like, I'll have to figure this out some other time. Well, I come back into the room a little while later, and there's my lovely wife already hard at work, slightly humiliating and embarrassing to me. But it only got worse because then I walked into the room, and as she's up there working hard, she says, hey, can you hand me a Phillips head? No idea what she's talking about. I just stared blankly at her, and she looked at me like I was an utter idiot, which she had every right to do, and it's a look I've become quite familiar with. (laughs) But over time, I've gotten a little better, right? Low bar, gotten a little better. And so when it comes to something like changing the oil on my motorcycle, yeah, you know, if you give me a video, you give me something to pattern after, like I can figure it out. I can do it. I've learned a few things, but just say, like, here's a task and go figure it out. Yeah, I'm worthless. I'm no good at that. So fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples. That can feel daunting. That can feel overwhelming for a single church. So what does it look like? Is there any pattern? Some examples were given. Well, friends, absolutely. We're given that right in the book of Acts where we're given this wonderful pattern of what it looks like to make disciples. You know, as you read through the book of Acts, and it's not just the book of Acts, we see this fourfold pattern of preaching Christ, gathering converts, training disciples, and sending out more preachers. And I say preachers, I mean sort of preachers and evangelists, those who preach the gospel, call for responses, right? Raise up the saints. So preaching, gathering, training, and sending. That's this fourfold pattern we see in Acts, not unique to Acts, it's over the rest of the New Testament, but it's that pattern and that pattern that actually has the local church at the center of the plan. So let's think first about preaching for a moment. You know, we studied Acts last year, one of the things we noted was Acts is really just this compilation of sermons. About half of Acts are just sermons and speeches which just highlights the role of the spoken word in the life of God's people. For God's people have always gathered around the hearing of God's word. So, for example, when God establishes his covenant relationship with Israel, there uh, in the Exodus, at Mount Sinai, in Exodus uh, Exodus 24, he gathers them in that covenant around the hearing of his word. When all of God's people gather after the exile, you know, Nehemiah, What does Nehemiah do? Well, he doesn't lead them in some exercises, you know, some some physical exercises. He doesn't lead them in some finger painting or some extended meditation through the stations of the cross. Like, he doesn't do any of that stuff, no. He has Ezra stand up in Nehemiah 8 on a wooden platform. And while the people are silent and in their places, Ezra the scribe reads from the book, from the law of God, clearly 
and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah 8.8, right? God's people gathering around the hearing of God's word. How does Jesus' own public ministry begin in Luke? It begins by entering into the synagogue, picking up the scroll of Isaiah, reading it, teaching from it. Shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that in Acts 2, what does Peter first do in Acts 2? He preaches, right? Because people aren't saved through some gospel blimp or some other gimmick. No, but they're saved through Peter's public exposition in Acts 2 of Joel chapter 2. You know, what, did, what got Peter and John arrested in Acts chapter 4? Well, it wasn't their public opinions. It wasn't their political opinions, rather, I should say. It was, it was that they got out there and they preached Jesus publicly to all the people. That's what got them arrested. It was their public preaching in Acts four. And yet we read that a great many who heard the word believed. Deacons were established in Acts six, not so that the apostles could be freed up to think about new strategies, right? New techniques for planting and dress and all the rest. No, they were freed up to preach the word of God, Acts six two. You know, it's when Stephen is stoned in Acts 7, there's a great persecution that arises at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and such that the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But when they're scattered, they're not out there fine-tuning their survival skills. They're not actually even out there keeping their heads down. But in Acts 8-4, we read that those scattered went about preaching the word. Paul's missionary journeys... When you read of them, they are preaching events. So his very first stop on his very first missionary journey, what does he do with Barnabas? When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, Acts 13, 5. And not just to the Jews, to the Gentiles as well. And Antioch and Pisidia, the same first missionary journey. We read, and when the Gentiles, when the Gentiles heard the word, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You know, I could, you could just keep going throughout the book of Acts. The story of the church's growth is the story of the word's growth. And the story of the word's growth is the story of the church's growth. The two go hand in hand. Because it's God working through his preached word that creates churches. Which is why what we first don't need, as we think about planting, we don't need an entrepreneur. We don't need a slick marketer. We need a preacher and a pastor. That's what we first need. So there's the preaching of the word. But then also that the second thing we see in this pattern, there's preaching, there's gathering. There's secondly, there's gathering people under that word. So it's what happened there at Pentecost, right? The disciples all gathered together, Acts 2-1, in one place. And it's that gathering together that marked their corporate life together as those who believed continued to gather and what to hear the word and to pray together and to celebrate the supper together, Acts 2, 42-47. And we know those gatherings weren't just simply informal gatherings, because Christians are described in Acts 12.1 as those who belonged to the church. They belonged to the church. If you want a proof text for church membership, Acts 12.1. Paul's missionary journeys 
not just stadium rallies and evangelistic events. No, those who were converted were then gathered into churches, such that when he completes the first half of his missionary journey, comes to the end and then backtracks, right, retraces his steps, what does he do but ensures that elders were established in every church? His concern was for the gathering. In Acts 20, what does Paul do but meet with the congregation on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day? And what does he do? He addresses them with the word because it's at the very essence of a church that it gathers together, that it congregates together. It's why the majority of the New Testament letters, right, they're not written to individuals. They're written to local churches and congregations. That's why even as Ben prayed in the pastoral prayer, we're exhorted in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because that's what Christians are called to do, to, to congregate and gather around the hearing of God's word. But it's not just that, right? The third element of that pattern we see, it's, it's also training according to the word. Yeah, so there's preaching, there's gathering, and there's training. So when the first Gentile church is established in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to the church in Antioch. And they sent Barnabas to help teach and to train that young congregation. What does Barnabas do? Barnabas recognizes there are a lot of Gentiles, and he knows this guy Saul, who's now Paul, has a passion for the Gentiles, and so he goes and he finds Paul, and he brings him back, and the two of them together spend a year there with the church in Antioch, training and building into that congregation, Acts eleven twenty six. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, right? Paul's first missionary journeys gathers them into churches in order to what? Acts fourteen twenty two to strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. And of course, one of the ways he sought to strengthen them was to ensure godly leadership for them in pastors, in elders. That's what Judas and Silas do. Acts chapter 15. They travel to churches for what end? To, quote, encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words, Acts 15, 32. It's what Paul and Silas do together. Paul and Silas, they're traveling through Syria and through Cilicia, and what do we hear but that they went about strengthening the churches by teaching and training them, Acts 15, 41. The same with Lydia and the Philippian believers in Acts 16. Paul does the same thing, strengthen and encourage them. Same thing with the believers in Achaia. Right, this is the consistent pattern. It's not after quick decisions. It's after making disciples and teaching those disciples in the words of Jesus to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And then after equipping and training, right, there's the sending. There's that fourth component. So notice the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. That's the language. They sent him. Or we think of Paul in Acts 13, his first missionary journey. You might think, oh, Paul's an apostle. He's got special authority from the risen Christ who met him and saved him in that marvelous way on the road to Damascus. He didn't need the authority of some local church, and yet we read in Acts 13 as he starts his missionary journey, right? He doesn't first go to some denominational headquarters. You know, he's not going to Richmond to start out with the IMB. He's not even going to some A29, you know, base there in Dallas, not a denominational hub. His own journey of preaching 
and gathering and training and sending, that work begins in a local church, Acts 13.1. We read, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then we read in 13.2 that it was the Holy Spirit through the church that would say, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So notice while it's the Lord that has set them apart, it's the local church that then sends them out. So the Lord set them apart, the local church sends them out. The church is called to part with those whom the Holy Spirit has prepared. Such that when Paul returns from his first missionary journey, he doesn't then gather all the denominational execs together. He doesn't be like, wow, let me tell you about my great journeys and ink some great book deal or go on some church planting speaking circuit. That's not what Paul does. No, instead we read that he arrives back in Antioch and gathers the church together. And they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Because the church that sent them would then be the church that celebrated with them. Antioch would become a home base for raising up and sending out preachers and planners. And friends, that's just the consistent pattern you see in the New Testament. Preaching, gathering, training, and sending. All in the context of local churches. The local church at the center of it because the local church is God's engine for world mission. So let's think lastly then about our practice. We've set all this up, thought about our promise, thought about our purpose, thought about the pattern. What's our practice? What does this have to say about our practice? And in the time left, I want to give you six practical considerations. Perhaps be encouraged, there were much longer before. But I'm just going to give you six now, six practical implications this has for us as a church. First practical implication as we think about our practice together is that churches plant churches. Now, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, no one was talking about church planting. It was pretty clear the church that I became a Christian in, the goal of that church was to become as large as possible. So when it grew out of its building, it just built a larger building. And then when it grew out of that, it went to multiple services. And when that was too much, it bought new land and built an even larger building. I don't think I heard the word church plant until maybe a decade into my own Christian life. Now, there's nothing wrong with churches numerically growing. So we sang earlier, you know, how sweet and awful as an awesome, awe-inspiring is the place, right? We long to see, we sang earlier, we long to see thy churches full. That's a good longing. We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race, a chosen race doesn't refer there to a particular ethnicity, but all those chosen by God of every ethnicity, that's what he's referencing, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. So there's nothing wrong with longing for full churches or even larger churches and bigger buildings. But friends, healthy organisms don't just get larger. The nature of a healthy organism is that it multiplies. It multiplies. And in the scriptures, it's not parachurch organizations, but it's churches that then go about planting churches because only churches have been entrusted with the power and with the authority of the keys, Matthew 16, right? To, to declare and to display and to defend the gospel. 
which means if we're going to be a church that plants churches, we need elder qualified men, which brings us to the second implication for our practice. Churches must raise up pastors. Churches must raise up pastors, pastors and teachers. It's what the Jerusalem church did with Barnabas. It's what Barnabas and Paul then do together for that year they're in Antioch, right? They're raising up Simeon and Lucius and Menean in 13.1. It's what Paul is going to do with Silas and with Titus and with Erastus and with Trophimus and with Timothy and with many more. And in what Paul is going to do in his last will and testament, his last book he writes, last letter, 2 Timothy, what does he say to Timothy there in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right? We reach the next generation well beyond us when we're long in our ga- graves by raising up pastors for that generation. That's how we reach that generation. Seminaries don't finally do that work Churches do that work. If there is to be a church tomorrow, it must begin by raising up pastors today. Friends, that's why, if you've wondered at UBC, why do we have PA positions, right? Pastoral assistant positions. Why did I create that? Where you've got individuals for three or five years to train up and, and Lord willing, send out. Well, it's for that very purpose. Because churches raise up pastors and send them out. It's why I wanted that position. It's why we started the internship you know, three years ago. It's why we're moving toward a more full-time residency, Lord willing. Because pastors don't just magically appear on trees, right? They've got to be raised up. They have to be equipped. They have to be trained. That takes time. That takes my time. That honestly takes more time from me than I've been able to give it these last three years. And not just my time. It takes staff time. It takes elder time. It takes commitment, not just of the pastors and shepherds, but of the congregation itself, Practically, and it takes financial commitment to give to the work, right? To give to supporting the residency, to, to give to supporting things like seminary support, to, to give to Simeon Trust training, which helps train in Bible exposition. Those are all great things if we're to be about raising up pastors. And I would suggest that ought not to be funded out of our budget surplus, but out of our regular annual budget. But it's also this commitment to raise up pastors that explains, you know, some of you wondered, what's staff and like interns, what are they all doing late on Sunday night on church campus? You know, there's been an ABF at 9, there's been the main service at 10.30, who knows how long Brad preached. Then we got the Sunday evening service, and then, you know, there we are sometimes till 9 at night. What are we doing? We're gathering around in a service review, and we're critiquing one another, and we're helping one another lead better, teach better by analyzing every aspect of the service and everything we do. And we review the day. And that includes review of me and a review of my sermons because I can improve and I need to get better. And it's why my wife meets in the midst of caring for our kids and working a part-time job and trying to write a book. Once a month, she tries to gather wives of men in ministry so she can help and encourage and prepare them for what they're headed on to. You know, it's why we don't just have our elders and staff teach on Sunday nights. It's why we don't just have elders and staff teach our adult Bible fellowships. Would the quality be better? Well, sometimes, maybe. But how else are we to raise up 
and train up future elders for the church? And how are we to do that to raise up and send them out for other churches if they don't get reps here? If we don't give them opportunities to stumble and learn and then grow from what they've learned? So I think I've shared before the story of my first sermon. Haven't I done that? Yeah, well, some of you haven't heard it. I was ridiculously nervous. I spoke so quickly. It was like a Gatling gun, just which meant what happened, I occasionally tripped over my words, I slurred my speech, I stumbled, and it was so bad at the back door, someone came up to me and asked with all sincerity if English was my second language. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was rough. I've never listened to that sermon. I'm not going to tell you where you can find it. <laughs> I wanted to die, right? But the reality is, with time, it improved, at least marginally. So third implication, if we're going to plant, it does mean we've got to be willing to send some of our best. It does mean we have to be willing to send some of our best. You know, I've always been struck by the example there at Antioch. Because Antioch, they don't send the scrubs. They don't send the B team out. You know, that's Paul and Barnabas they send out on that first missionary journey and will continue to send out those brothers in later missionary journeys. And they were, in in Paul and Barnabas must have been some of their best. Now, is that hard to send out our best? Of course it's hard, right? I don't want Trey and and Kristen to go. I love having Trey here. Trey's got a personality for every day of the week. (laughs) Comes into my office, I never know what to expect. It's always a breath of fresh air like 95% of the time, (laughs) right? But part of pouring into them is the willingness one day to part with them. You invest some of them, Lord willing, some of your heart into them, and then they take it with them when they go. And as parents, we understand that, those of you who have sent kids off out of the house. But they're not, right, they're not my staff. They're not even our staff. They're the Lord's servants, finally, And the Lord will use churches to equip and then descend as he sees fit, right? He is the master chess player. He knows what he is doing. They're his pieces, and he will move them. It's, of course, what Mark Dever, what Capitol Hill Baptist Church did for me and helped raising me up and then sending me here. It's what, no doubt, Denton did and and Delray did for John Henderson before the Lord brought him here. And so it's what we're called to do as a congregation, raise some up, and then the hard thing of sending some of them out and away. Now, I will say, we can't send all of our best. We just can't empty this place of all of our elders and leaders. Some have to stay so the work can continue. But some that are dear and precious to us will need to go and ought to do so. And so if you're a member of UBC wondering, hey, like, should I go out with Trey and Christian? Should I be part of that work? Tonight, come back for the members meeting because I'm going to give you roughly a dozen considerations. So if you're thinking about whether or not you ought to go or whether or not you ought to stay, I'm going to give roughly a dozen considerations for you tonight at the members meeting. All right, that's in an attempt to keep this under an hour and a half. Okay, fourth practice for us. It's important to have a sending culture. More important, fourthly, to have a sending culture than to have a sending strategy. So I think as we think about our practice, fourth thing, and more important to have a sending culture than a sending strategy. So in the words of late Peter Drucker, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
I'm not a big fan of applying all the lessons of the business world to the church because there are a lot of things that don't carry over, but I think that one is legit. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. If the congregation isn't infused with a church planting and a church revitalizing culture, then a church plant's just going to lead to fatigue and to frustration and ultimately failure. It's one of the reasons why we, you know, we pray every Sunday morning for other local churches. If you've never wondered why we do that, it's one of the reasons we do it is to build this kind of culture into life of the church. Why Ben was praying for Old Missouri Road Baptist Church as Mario was preaching there this morning. Because ascending culture recognizes that the growth of the kingdom is more important than the growth of our congregation. That's what ascending culture, that's what it understands. The growth of the kingdom is more important than the growth of our congregation. Now that ought not to just be a mark of ascending church. That ought to be a mark of every biblical church and every biblical Christian. Sadly, it's not. It ought to be. But that's also why, you know, last Sunday night in the evening service, I had Matt Gray here, the, the new pastor of Living Hope, a church that was planted down here in Fayetteville, right off Garland. And I had him here because I wanted the church to hear about his work so we could be praying for his work and encouraging him in his work. Is he one of us within this body? No. Is he part of our denomination? No, he's not part of our denomination. And you all know how passionately I feel about some secondary matters like baptism and polity and regenerate church membership and church discipline and some of you wish I cared a little less about those things but as much as I care about them I recognize that at the end of the day the gospel we share is more important and so Matt will be here sharing with us so we can pray with him because those secondary things are never as important as that gospel we share together Now, we could roll out a strategy playbook next month. We could do that, but building a church culture where discipling is not just what super Christians do, but what all Christians do, what every Christian is intended to do, and where evangelism is not just the job of missionaries and paid pastors, but everyone who professes faith in Christ, and where the focus of churches is not just launching and staffing programs, but working to build into people. That kind of culture takes time. That kind of culture takes years to develop. That kind of culture requires patience. Because church planning isn't first about just communicating some top-down strategy, but it's about building up a bottom-up culture. And it's that bottom-up culture we need if we're going to faithfully send out. So a fifth practice. We ought to send discerningly and support graciously. So fifthly, we ought to send discerningly and yet support graciously. So what we don't want to do when it comes to church plants is simply like throw jello at a wall and just see what sticks. That's not a good approach. We're dealing with people's lives. We're dealing with people's souls. We don't want to be careless with that. Too many organizations and too many churches send indiscriminately and then they support suspiciously. 
Oh, friends, that's the worst thing one can do, just to send indiscriminately and then turn around and support suspiciously. No, that's not what we ought to do. We ought to be discerning and careful in whom we send. And yet once we've made that commitment, we ought to be gracious in our support of them. Now, that'll entail financial support, right, as we've set aside nearly a quarter of a million to send Trey out. But it's also going to involve spiritual care and, and leadership support in much the same way Paul repeatedly returned to the churches that he had helped to plant to encourage them and instruct them in the word, right? We want to provide that kind of ongoing spiritual care, whether it's in the form of filling a pulpit during a busy season or seeing that uh, a, a pastor and his wife get a marriage retreat that might be needed or seeing they're available for pastoral counsel or take a call when they've got a difficult pastoral situation, right? We want to be discerning in who we send and then support graciously in it. And then sixth, as we plant, we do want to consider where there's need. It is a good thing to consider where there's need. So the Northwest Arkansas Council estimates that Washington and Benton counties will reach 1 million people by 2045. So in 25 years, we're currently under 500,000, 2019 census, over or about a million, they say. So under 500 now, about a million in 25 years. Benton County is expected to grow from about 204,000 at present, estimated, right? Who can really estimate these things? But by estimations, go from 204,000 to 546,000 in Benton County by 2045. That's an additional 340,000 people. I moved here to get away from L.A. and D.C. traffic. It's coming with me. And, you know, many of the people moving here are moving from less churched areas. I think it's estimated, Trey, you told me that maybe 30,000 Indians in Benton County in the coming, coming years. Is that roughly right? Roughly, he's nodding his head. I kind of got it right, kind of close. Point is, a lot of folks will be coming in unchurched areas, not an understanding likely of the gospel. Um, and that is a wonderful opportunity for us. That's a growing need. And so it's no surprise that with some of the the funds that we've highlighted sort of the western side there of Bentonville near Thaden Field is an area in which we would hopefully like to think about planting. So similarly, as we think about sending missionaries out, as we send missionaries out of this church, we want to think about need. Where are there unreached people? Where are there unreached people groups where there's a need for gospel work? But, you know, in addition to thinking about need, we also just want to think about providentially when God provides opportunity. Where does he provide opportunity? So is there a struggling church around us that would benefit and like our help? Is there a way to come alongside that church, to partner with that church, to provide them with the pastor, perhaps to shore up their own witness to Christ? Because as much as everyone loves to talk about planting, it's admittedly a little confusing when you've got a church planting one church that shares the same gospel and even distinctives as the church that's across the street. It's a little odd, like, okay, so now we've got this church struggling and dying, and this church just comes and plants across the street and says, hey, look at us, and they fly a bigger, fancier flag. Well, what if we could come alongside that struggling church whose witness in that community has stumbled in recent years? Maybe their witness has actually been a reverse witness for Christ, and by coming alongside them, helping them with the pastor, giving them sort of an injection of people to kickstart that work. We can take down that bad witness to Christ. We can put forward a a replenished witness and a a rejuvenated witness to Christ, and we can encourage in that way through revitalizing them. What a wonderful thing that would be. 
right? What we've been able to do with Emmanuel, sending Ben Seawald up, and so first, half that first intern class up there to, to Emmanuel to try to encourage that work. It's what, you know, we're thinking about doing, having conversations with Lakeside there up in Rogers, as many of our uh, past interns and Folks have been up there to preach. It's what Mario's doing at Old Missouri Road, just serving as, a, as an interim there in a, in a short season for them, perhaps. Uh, it's what we've been trying to do by providing preachers for First Baptist Elkins. For as much as New Testament churches are independent, and they are independent, they're still interdependent on one another, right, for support, for encouragement, for aid. So that's a lot to chew on. I gave you four points, and there were multiple sub-points in those points. You're like, this is slightly exhausting. Well, no more points. No more sub-points. But my prayer, my prayer is that together we grasp that the local church is Jesus' discipleship program. It's where God is seen in the church as his word is heard as his commands are obeyed, as his people are sent. The church, in the words of Ephesians 3, the church is where God is displaying his eternal glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Which is why we're given a promise and a purpose and a pattern and thus a practice to consider. Friends, the question is, will we take those things to heart? Friend, will you take those things to heart? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that in the midst of of thinking about what you are doing in the world, when it's easy to have our eyes drawn toward that which is discouraging, even a decline in religiosity here in North America, decline in evangelical witness, we know that that decline does not negate your promises. And while we may lament, the Southern Hemisphere is exploding in many ways with Christian witness. We give praise for that. And God, we pray that in whatever ways you would want us to display your glory through the establishment of other churches, through the revitalization of other churches. Oh God, we pray you'd make it clear. We pray you'd make us a people eager for that commitment, for the sacrifices that are made, and for the glory that ensues as we walk in faithfulness to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.